0: This is Thomas DePoen.
1: This is Max.
2: This is Kevin Hamm.
1: Hey, this
3: is Jake Cook. Hi, this is William Roy. You're listening to The Green Box.
1: Today on The Green Box, we're going to talk about pacing, because... Pacing is important to all games, and Delta Green is a game. Therefore, pacing is important to Delta Green. QED. Uh, here's the issue. Um, whether you're running a one-shot or a campaign, you're going to find yourself in a situation where things are going too fast or too slow, and you got to unfuck the situation. This is assuming that you're the one running the game. And this is something that everyone struggles with. Uh, I've run games that had not great pacing, I've played in games that had bad pacing, I've played in games with the Delta Green developers that had not so good pacing, because it's something that is hard to get right on the first try, it's part of the reason why you play test scenarios, to learn how to make sure that there's enough stuff happening, that the player characters have a reason to be there, but not so much shit going on that they can't make any decisions.
2: Yeah, and I've been running games since I was a wee little baby. Um and I'm st- I still have facing, you know, issues. So it's definitely a long term thing that I think we can offer. You know, I have a few bits of handy advice and a few uh anecdotes and so so to speak, and hopefully we can try to make it a little easier. I also do have some player facing player facing player facing pacing advice. There we go. Uh, that might be helpful too. So hopefully not we'll try not to cure it all-, all towards handlers. But uh the first thing if if I feel like a game is going too slow or too fast, I always try to reality check it. And see how the players are doing. Because if I think it's going too slow, but they are engrossed in this investigation and they're digging it, they're all turning over clues and making plans and having a good time, then maybe it's fine. It can just breathe a little bit. At the same time, if they're rushing through things, but they're wicked excited, they want to kick down the next door and get the next thing or whatever, maybe that's okay. So be wary that you may have a different... uh viewpoint of the pacing than your players. So I would certainly like take take that as a first uh, first like, guiding step. And of course your players might not be having fun, in which case, you know, that's a great sign to either step it up or, or slow it down, you know, d- depending on wh- which way it needs to go. Do you guys have any like, rules of thumb or any, you know, if you write a scenario, do you try to do it in, you know, three-hour chunks, four-hour chunks, or do you put any thought into that when you're running or like prepping for a scenario?
1: The majority of my energy is spent on making it move faster. It's spent on, how can I make this more exciting? How can I make this dead air go away? How can I make sure that we're not stuck in an endless cycle of planning? How can I make sure that this combat encounter doesn't drag? And very rarely do I move in the opposite direction, but it does happen. I was just thinking today about how in the original, not even just the original, in the final of Carcinization, the timeline on the arrival of the cultists to the location that the players begin the scenario at is too short. It means that the players are just about finishing their investigation when they are immediately thrown into a combat encounter. And realistically, it's not automatically combat encounter, but it pretty much was with every playtest group. And that means that then they are essentially locked into spending the rest of the scenario dealing with this group. And as a result, it's very unlikely that they will actually go and explore a lot of the leads that are given at the crime scene because they feel that they are under immediate attack by a group of dangerous NPCs that they need to eliminate before they can safely do anything else. So th- this is a, an issue with making the pacing too frantic, is that it makes it difficult or impossible for the players to actually do things because there's just constantly something exploding into their field of view or attacking them or demanding their attention, and... There's no way for them to actually do the thing that they wanted to do when they made whatever plan they were making, and as a result, it can produce this gameplay that's unsatisfying because it just feels like a bunch of random shit happening rather than a natural escalation.
2: So you you kind of you kind of have these the rival of the cultists as like a lever you can throw, uh, either too early or you know just at the Goldilocks time. I'm not intently familiar with the scenario, but generally speaking, if you have a big, a big incident like that where there's a big combat encounter, if that doesn't have to happen at exactly at hour 12, if it can happen you know, anytime over the next day or whatever it is, then you can you can use that and wait until the players have just about got comfortable and just about gotten their things done. Or if you're running a game where you know you could be done three hours, you know, at, hour, at one and a half hours, bam, that's when the cultists are going to hit whether they're ready for it or not so you can finish the game. And that happens a lot like a, like con games. Where you want to get through all the content, and sometimes you have to just hit them with the hammer. But if it's a game where you're running at home, and you can split it into two sessions, then you can let them, you know, take all their time and do their stuff, and then have that, you know, big attack, and then break for the for the week there, or something like that. So you can, when you're writing a scenario, you can like kind of design these levers that GMs can throw, your handlers can throw to either, you know, speed up, slow down the train, so to speak. And I know you guys have heard me talk a lot about like when we talk about the critiques of shotguns and stuff. I like having. Those kind of notes to a, a potential handler in the scenario, like, hey, if your players are taking their time and you need to speed them up, you know, try these two things. Or if your players are going too fast and you got to put in a roadblock in their way, you know, try these, these like these things. So that makes it really, those are really helpful things to include if you have good ideas for them in your scenario because it makes it a lot more runnable. When you're prepping a game for like a uh, one shotter, you know, it's got to be over in a certain time frame. Do you make any changes or do you do anything differently than if you knew you could uh, break at any time and, and go, you know, start picking up again next week, like a longer form campaign style play?
1: I've never written or run anything for Delta Green that had the expectation of more than one session, with the exception of a series that went disastrously badly because with all the player turnover that happened in between sessions... Everyone was just stuck in this constant one oh one stage where they were all just investigating the same thing over and over again and had to be horsewhipped into actually interacting with the scenario content?
2: Let's pretend I mean obviously we're we're are guessing right, pretend you had the same group for each of those things. Did you write that in such a way as to have natural like say it's a say it's a twelve hour scenario and you're running it over three, four hour sessions, so you designed it to have natural like climaxes at like hour three each time, or are you not
1: no, it wasn't. Session. It wasn't as designed as a scenario.
0: What are you, Do You ever run anything longer form or like campaign style? Uh, no, I'm the same way. I've never done anything where there was an expectation that was it would last more than a session. When you run it for just one session, will you will you run the session
2: long, or do you get to a point after like you know hour four or five where you just have to like throw on the towel? Uh,
0: now I feel like I have a hard limit of three and a half hours because I've done really long sessions just to get it done, and it was. Pretty miserable for me by the end.
2: that's yeah, that's one thing I run into as a player a lot. Sometimes sometimes if I play with folks, especially if they're not East Coasters, you know, when they're getting to like nine or ten PM at night, it's like midnight or one PM for me. And I'm sometimes on a weekday, I'm already starting to drag by that point. So sometimes it's like, man, I will be here next week. Like just, just just call it at a reasonable point so I can, you know, get back to my real life. But that can be challenging. It's it's hard sometimes as a handler. If you're you're as a handler you're trying to manage all these different moving parts, you may not even realize that half your players are, like, partly checked out. So it might be tough to realize when to fold them.
1: You said that you had advice for players.
2: Yeah, yeah. So, like, some some meta advice is don't be afraid to just tell your your handler, tell your GM, like, hey, you know, I need to start wrapping this up for the next, you know, half an hour. Give them, you know, give them a place where they can find a natural stopping point. Because, again, they may not realize that or may not see that. Oh, I'm,
1: I know, no, I, I completely disagree with you. I think that telling someone I need to leave in half an hour at that half hour mark is like, that's a real scum tactic. Don't do that. Tell them at the start of the session when you have to leave, not, not half an hour before.
2: Yeah, no, I mean more like if say it's a game that runs from 5 PM to 8 PM and it's like nine 30 being like, all right, man, like I've, I've got to go. Yeah, yeah. At
1: that point you have a, you have a right to, to say, look, I can't, I can't devote more energy to this. God, I wish Jake was here. Cause we'd roast him over this. I remember his, I remember the first time he ran, um, uh, like, I don't remember what it was. Maybe it was um, the one about the spiders, because Jake's scenarios used to run like they used to go like an hour over time, and the players would be like, "Okay, we can't do another combat encounter," and Jake would be like, "No, it's fine. We have about an hour left." Yeah, yeah.
2: So yeah, I definitely agree. If 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 you have a deadline, you know, obviously when you when you sign up for a game or you know the game is going to run a certain length, you know, deal with it then. But if if it starts to run long. Don't be afraid to speak up and be like, "Look, let's call it, and do it next. We finish next week or whatever." So that's like meta player advice. And then you know, in character player advice, I guess the, the best advice I'd be is if you think things are going too slow, then uh, I, I guarantee your character has some kind of motivation you can lean on that might make a cool roleplay element to be like, "Let's, you know, let's let's maybe not plan for twenty minutes. Let's plan for two minutes and then you know, kick down the door and get the job done." And that can make things more interesting and can move things along. Or the other way, you know, if you want to slow things down. Because you think the rest of your team is rushing through things, don't be afraid to pipe up in character and you know, put your foot down and try to make some make something happen.
1: I think that pacing is one of the primary reasons why I don't enjoy Delta Green as a player.
2: It's definitely a place where there if there's not there can be a big disconnect between like if the handler likes Delta Green a certain way and the players expect Delta Green a certain way and you guys are really far off that can clash for sure.
1: Just the amount of energy that has to be spent getting basic shit done, because every time you want to do something, someone else shouts, wait, and then they say, like, a list of ten actions that they want to take instead.
2: While he's doing that, I'm going to do this, 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 and this. Yeah,
1: god damn it.
2: This probably weighs, and that may be a topic for a future episode, you know, a- action economy or ways to, to get around that. Maybe somebody can brainstorm, but...
1: I think that handlers being more comfortable... I used to think that splitting the party was bad. But the more that I think about it, the more splitting the party lets people actually do things instead of requiring this exhaustive negotiation about what the group will do. Yeah,
2: and especially, you know, this and this talks right to pacing. As long as you can jump, if you're going to split the party, you don't want to spend an hour on one group. You want to spend maybe 15, 10, 15, 20, 15, kind of jump back and forth and let everybody be engaged. And then let players like specialize and do something interesting, for sure. Uh, have you ever just called it, like, before a session's over, it been like, well we've been going long enough and, you know, there's more content, but we're not going to get to it and we're going to call it here. Have you ever had to do that? Or do you, like, grind it out to the bitter end?
1: The last time I stopped a session because we were at time, even though we hadn't um, reached the climax of the scenario, was the run of who killed the case officer that I did for Gen Con Online, because the players had all the investigative pieces in in place, they just hadn't got the final... They wanted to, to, like, chase down the, the NPCs and have a shootout. But by that point, they had gone over time already. And, and the NPCs had already escaped, so it was going to be like another big exhaustive investigation to try and locate them before the final encounter. And I said, you know, this isn't, this isn't necessary, and realistically, this is something that Delta Green could give to somebody else, because they've already, they already know your faces, so you're not going to be able to track them down without them noticing you. So just have someone else do it. You've done a good job here, you got us this far, and we'll see you later.
2: That's a neat way to resolve it, because especially at a con game where, like, if you go long, they're missing their next thing, in theory, or you're missing your next thing. Yeah. If it's, I run your home table, you can be like, hey, guys, can we go another hour? All right, everybody's good, and you know, keep going. But at a con game, you can't. And I tend to run my con games, I tend to pace my con games fast, because I'd, I'd much rather end, like, 45 minutes early and be like, great job, guys. You had It was an awesome time. Any questions, you know? Here's some resources. What else are you doing in Indiana, or whatever? Then be forty five minutes late, and then being like, "Guys, like, I gotta go to my D D game, or whatever." And I kind of feel like I don't like I don't feel like I've robbed them of an experience if they had a good time doing it and it was you know fast paced and exciting. I think I've only I think I've only ever had one person like walk away from a Gen Con game in person, so I think I got a pretty good record. I think he was playing Tom, your character, your Aziz Ansari agent. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, they like they like frontal assaulted a machine gun nest, and he ate. He ate ate shit really hard and got bodied, um, and then kind of just like left, not realizing that. And I didn't realize he was leaving. I just thought he was like getting a drink of water or something. But we wrapped up like twenty minutes later, so it's like. And here's another thing about pacing. Generally, if I'm if I kill a character and there's still like three quarters of the scenario left, I try to have something figured out where I can give them another sheet. Like, okay, well, you know, like an observer effect. Well, you're dead, but you know, you can play the investigator or you know, energy guy or you know, in another scenario, Here's another pregen. But if we're 20 minutes from the climax, then like, hey, just enjoy Just you know, sit back and watch everyone else get killed or whatever's gonna happen, because then it's not such a such a big deal. Or maybe you
1: just hated oh, my style. I, I, I don't no, know. I'm sympathetic. I don't like Observer Effect. I think that the um, that the pacing on it is not good. I always but I've but I've, I've I've spent the last three years beating this dead horse, so maybe I shouldn't have thrown that last that last punch, tried to get the last word in.
2: Well, Observer Effect is funny, cause it until I kind of class dropped it, it was my favorite scenario, but I definitely. Change, I definitely changed the iterations and the pacing. And it's funny because I, I, I like
1: I like Iconoclast better, but Iconoclast is a scenario that in its initial iteration had massive pacing
2: problems. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> like, like it was, um, it had an issue where you basically, for a lot of people, this, the investigative stuff at the, at the beginning wasn't fun. It was just a tax that they paid for the fun shit at the end. And if you didn't, one of the things that you saw, Kevin, on the playtest is that if the characters didn't pay the tax and they just tried to go straight to the investigation, they got fucked. Yeah, exactly. And I know that um, one of the things that Glancy said he was trying to fix is to make the stuff at the beginning faster, more interactive, and more fun, which is like recognition of a pacing issue. That and that's that's how you solve it: faster, more interactive, and more fun is generally my philosophy for how to make Delta Green or any game. And it's easier said than done, definitely.
2: Yeah, and kind of has a weird one because when I in my playtest when I played it, I played with a bunch of people. Who all had a very similar, who had similar-ish backgrounds. So we we'd all been part of large investigatory frameworks in our lives. So like we, it was it was interesting to us to watch like three out of four investigation leads fail on us because we just like that's how real work is. You just have to keep tugging until, and you know every fifth or sixth time you tug something useful and that's a note you need, and the other ones are all a waste of time. So to us it was like that was really cool because we got to really work in, in realism, but no one else liked it. <laughs> <laughs> because it wasn't fun. They, they don't want to play real life simulator. But I'll be. I'm excited when that. I'll be excited when that one comes back out. So I think. I think all we've explained here is that we're the Greenbox podcast and we don't know what we like.
1: <laughs> well, it's important to to recognize that the reason why Iconoclast had that issue is that it was a scenario that had a very detailed simulated world. That it had a timeline of events that happen if the players do nothing that it had a lot of very detailed if-thens for certain actions the players could take. And the more dedicated you are to making your world simulated and function according to its own internal logic rather than serving the narrative, the more likely you are to have pacing issues. Not because you've built a bad simulated world, but because a simulated world functioning according to its own internal timeline is naturally not going to function according to when people are getting bored, when too much shit is happening, whatever. And I really wish that Will were here because he's our Viscid expert, and I know that Viscid has an issue where if you just run it according to the timeline exactly as written, all of the good shit can just happen off-screen when the players aren't there. <laughs> but if yeah. you tweak it so that it, or or if you just do stuff to ensure that the players are in the right place for the significant events. It is this cool, like, noir story where, like, you talk to someone and then they get assassinated while you're talking to them. And just all this stuff happening inside the field of view of the players.
2: Yeah, and that brings us back to a good point about pacing is, you know, whether you've written it yourself or someone else has written it, you know, you're running a game for a group of players and that's a unique, like, unique concoction. So don't be afraid to move stuff around, adjust things, like, don't fall victim to... You, know, you must run it as written. I mean, unless you're playtesting it, in which case, please run it as written because that's the whole point. But anything else, you know, if if having the guy get shot in front of the players is more interesting, but he's supposed to get shot tomorrow in the book, like change it, make it make it interesting.
1: I'll say this though, um, there is a certain value to having like a richly simulated world if you are the kind of person who enjoys feeling as though you are interacting with something that is not just being made as you play it. This is similar to how when you play a game that's about dungeon crawling or some kind of tactical challenge or whatever, you want to know that you have mastered something that existed independently of you, not that your success or failure was determined by what another person thought was narratively fitting. As in, when you explore the dungeon and you find the secret door, you want to be finding it because it was there and you made the wise choice to look for it in that particular spot and not because the person running the game felt that they were rewarding you by placing it there in a response to you looking for it. So there is a type of person, and I am sometimes this type of person, who wants to know that the thing that they are doing is... Getting the result that it's getting because of the way that the world is set up. Agnostic of of out of character someone thinking was narratively plausible.
2: Yeah, what's that that trope or like every every path leads to the cave troll or whatever it is?
1: I believe it's the quantum cave troll. Oh it's close. right? Well, no, it's actually the quantum ogre. Quantum ogre. Know, it's the what, joke.
2: Cave troll and ogre are very similar. Um But like it's similar to the How many that?
1: hit dice do they have? I don't know. But
2: you know, I if if done if done well, a quantum ogre really isn't shouldn't be visible to the player, so they shouldn't know either way. But I do think you're right. There's definitely a much more visceral, like winning feeling when it's not even just not even just
1: winning, but like the idea of Or success? Not just not even just success, because even if you have a an emotional low point or a failure, having that be the result of a bunch of stuff happening in the game world is sometimes, and not always, but sometimes really great. If it's if it's the result of, and especially if you can see it, because if it just comes out of nowhere, then it sucks. And if it just feels like nothing was happening and then you got zapped, it sucks. But if you can see, like, this event is the, resu- is the direct result of this cause and effect that we initiated through this other action, then that's cool, because it feels like you're making your mark on a simulated environment. Well, simulated may be the wrong word, but...
2: Yeah, like a... a... A non-GM Fiat environment.
1: I think, Kevin, you've always been much more willing than I was to change internal elements of scenarios to fit with whatever the hell the player characters are doing. I remember in Hard Candy the first time you ran it for myself. And Tom, were you there for the first run of Hard Candy?
0: No, I wasn't.
1: Kevin was running it and he told us afterwards that the line of investigation we had pursued to get to the ending... Was not one that was written in the scenario at all, but we were so dedicated to it that he realized that there was no way he was going to steer us towards the track that we had act- that that actually existed in the, on the page.
0: The like the rave, because I think you sent me your notes before running, yeah. it, Kevin, and I I mentioned something like I think I warned you that North Korean meth was such a crazy element that the players were probably gonna follow up on that first, yeah, and definitely. that there wasn't a lot of yeah, there wasn't a lot of support in your notes at the time for that.
1: Yeah. It's the classic because the players are always going to go after the perpetrator rather than the victim. So if you put all your clues into the victim's pockets, then those are not as likely to actually make it into the the actual run of the scenario.
2: Which is good. because I mean, that that guy I forget his name. I think he's called the hyena. Um, the 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 white drug dealer. Like he's he's a lot more flushed out now, and he is a viable investigation angle that does eventually lead back to the same. Same area, but it's all a little more fleshed out now. It wasn't just kind of making up on the fly. So that's, I mean, to me, that's a great example of, like, why we playtest things more than once. Because the first time, it was all about missing persons and, you know, the family, and once you get on the family, you know, go through the trash and stuff, you find all the clues and then shh, be lined in another direction,
1: so.
0: Maybe
2: playtesting has the same rule as fire extinguishers, where, you know, two is one and one is none. If
1: Will were here, he would have laughed at that. Now, are there concrete ways to... So the the oldest pacing trick that I can think of is the noir author, as as a I think as a as a um, it's kind of a caricature of himself would write that if you didn't know what should happen, you would have a man come through the door with a gun. And he wrote, he wrote he wrote he wrote the the next sentence that he wrote after that is this could get pretty stupid, but at the time it didn't seem to matter. So he 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 was he was kind of parodying himself <coughs> when he wrote that, but. The line he wrote after the second line was, a writer who is afraid to overreach himself is as useless as a general who is afraid to be wrong. And what he meant by that was that it's better to have something exciting happen, even if it's kind of stupid, because it's better to have it be stupid and have something happen than yeah move to, forward. To, 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 to be wise and to do nothing.
2: Yeah, and that, that fits the other room pretty well, you know, when in doubt. Have somebody with a gun show up, <laughs> cause things to become interesting. So obviously, you know, in a in a perfect world, if, if you're a writer, you're going to write a bunch of levers people can throw in your scenario to adjust pacing, and you're going to have it all well thought out. If you're not writing it, you're just running it, maybe you've prepped ahead of time and you uh, have figured out what those levers are without them being explicitly written. Or you may just have to improvise on a fly and be like, I need to slow things down, so I'll just go to the next page now or I gotta speed things up or vice versa, I gotta speed things up, I'll go to the next page now, or I gotta slow things down, I'll, you know, and have a roadblock appear here. You know, and if you're a player, um uh, the only real player advice I have aside from like meta advice is just, you know, win your character. it's and, and Tom, you're really good at this. You're really good at making poor out of character decisions, but that are very in character because they're interesting. Like you'll you'll like play with stuff and like poke the magic magic box, whatever it is. So figure out a motivation for your character and have them either speed things up or slow things down.
0: Uh, I mean, my motivation when I play is not really to survive. If I just wanted my character <laughs> to survive, I would not actually play. I would just sit in the Discord channel and listen to the game. It wouldn't be in Delta Arena if they wanted to live. Well, just, I keep saying I want a horror experience more than anything else, so that means I have to put myself in, at risk, because a lot of times I realized it's not necessary the GM's inclination to put me at risk.
2: Yeah, fair. Any other uh, pacing-related
1: thoughts? I have said a lot of things in this episode that like put the blame back on the players, and I'm going to do a 180 on that and say that as a scenario author, if shit's boring, it's my fault. If I'm not giving people the tools that they need, and... and, and Maybe maybe it's my fault because I'm trying to run a scenario that relies on like lots of accumulated knowledge at an open table and so I'm constantly gonna get bewildered new faces that are struggling to master information that's already been laid down by previous groups. And if that's if that's an issue for me, it's my responsibility not to run that kind of game. And similarly if if I'm running into players that are doing endless planning for things that don't matter, I have to look at Okay, what kind of signals have I sent them about what kind of snare this is? is this, am I am I running a heist where the natural reaction is to come up with an up with an airtight scheme? Have I communicated that the NPCs are super dangerous and can't be approached directly, necessitating endless surveillance? Or in the case of like I said earlier, uh, carcinization, have I accidentally made it impossible to engage in all the investigative stuff at the beginning because the Immediate, the immediacy of an urgent combat encounter is, you know, what are you going to deal with? The the harmless old professor from Venture Brothers or the guys piling out of the car to shoot guns at you?
2: And I think there's something to be said for, we, we talk a lot about like the social contract, but you know, if you say you have a four hour time slot and you're at hour two and you know you're not going to finish everything, you know, if you're not sure which way to go, don't be afraid to be like, hey guys, let's, you know, do we... Yeah, I think we're going a little slower than I expected. I got, you know, four hours of content, two hours left. Uh, you know, do you want to get through it? You know, I'll, I'll condense stuff. We'll have a rocking good time. Are you all good coming back in a week? Because they may all say, yeah, we're having a great time. We'll, we'll come, we'll keep going. We'll come back in a week and, and I'll have a good time. And they may say, oh, my schedule sucks. Let's get through it. And then you, you kick up the pace a little bit. So don't be afraid to have the conversation because, you know, at the end of the day, you're all trying to, you're all there for a similar purpose. So you have a good time playing this game or running this game. So, you know, try to get their input. So we've had, we've discussed, I think in the past uh, or or an after show somewhere, the fact that I think each of us three here have different kind of ideal um, agent counts. I tend to like a a four or five. I know max is maybe a little lower. Uh, I know some people prefer two. Um, So the question is, when you write a scenario, do you think about how many agents might be in and then do you set like, how how do you set the difficulty for your scenario when you write it?
1: What is difficulty?
2: Yeah, that's very challenging. Hey, I mean, so, so let's let's say your goal when you write a scenario is is you want the agents to finish it, have a good time, but be challenged in doing so. And uh, whether that challenge is like do they shoot the bad guys or do they you know, brain the bad guys, we we should discuss. But in general, you want them to finish it and have a good time, and be challenged. I think. You know, I generally don't design scenarios that are just to kill people. I, I write Delta Green scenarios just to kill people
1: <laughs> in an adventure that you're writing the having more players is generally advantageous in case of investigation because it means you have a wider pool of skills to draw from. You have more characters who can do tradecraft stuff so that if one of them gets made, there's another one can just come in and in a in terms of a combat situation, more characters if you're choosing the terms of the engagement, more characters means more damage that you're dealing per turn. Because people can say, oh, it's Delta Green, it's not about DPS. But guess what? When you're in a gunfight, it's about fucking DPS.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, so when you write scenarios, do you have in your mind, like, an ideal... Do you, do you assume the agents are going to bring all the skills needed to solve any clue you give them, or do you assume that they're going to need, like, helping hands, or, or they might only be able to fight a few things at a time? You know, I like, guess, like, like, how do you determine whether to put, you know, one monster or two monsters, one ghoul or two ghouls in the passageway kind of thing?
1: I try very hard to write scenarios that do not depend on players having a specific skill. When it comes to a fight, my preference is almost always to have a smaller num- smaller number, so a smaller number or even just a single creature, but to give that creature some kind of property or tactic that it uses to ensure that it only ever faces one player character at a time. And that way, the number's advantage is irrelevant. And that's because no matter how tough your creature is, if you put it against four players, it's going to get action economy to death because the players get four actions for every action the creature gets. So short of an, short of giving it an ability that just deletes everyone in a single turn, it's not going to do well. And the alternative is this creature is smart enough that it's not going to take on four people at once. It's going to wait until one of them is alone and then try to get them. And that means that The number of players doesn't matter.
2: I was thinking that's really clever just uh, to give it some intelligence. Um, And one of the suggestions that I was coming up with when I thought about talking about this is in your scenario, you can write directly to the handler. And I've done that a little bit. I know... um, the full operation Fulminate does that, I believe. But you can say like, "Hey, if if you need to make this easier, you know, take away his disability or reduce the armor or whatever. Or if you need to make this more challenging, you know, add a trap or add, you know, this to it, and let the handler decide. You know, by that point, they've got by that point, you do let them pick.
1: I don't know that if I that I agree with that though, because in when I when I look at Fulminate, I don't see here's how to adjust difficulty. I see here's how to adjust pacing. Because Fulminate is a scenario that, as written, is almost unwinnable. Like, that's part of the fun of it, is that you are thrust into a very fucked up situation and you must escape with your life, because actually completing the objective is quite unlikely.
2: Is there... Uh, yeah, I think, that's, I think you make a good point about difficulty versus pacing. To some extent, if, if the end goal of that scenario is just escape with your life, then the pacing kind of is a difficulty. You know, the longer you keep people there or in it, or the quicker you get them out of it, you know, is, is a kind of easier or difficult scale.
1: I'll use an example of a scenario that I wrote that deals with this. Uh, I wrote a scenario just recently based on the classic 1985 Soviet film, Come and See. Uh, it was the most exploitive scenario I've ever written, and it was a lot of fun for the players and for myself. It's a hex crawl, and one of the issues that hex crawls can have is that if you say there's a five percent chance through per hour spent traveling through any given hex that you will have an encounter and the encounter can be with partisans who have a very good chance of ambushing and killing you then all of your players can get wiped out in the first five minutes before you run into the actual like meat of the scenario so uh, I'll use a real example, and I, I wish Jake was here because he has a similar example from a game that he ran with a similar concept. Um, the characters are, are looking at the mysterious tree with the eye carved in it. They hear something moving in the bush. The, uh, the sergeant the, um, immediately you know yells after them, and they all run off into the bushes. And I ask, are you moving fast to catch them, or are you moving carefully? And he says, I'm moving fast. So they run immediately, break line of sight with the machine gunner who stays behind to cover them, and then run out into a clearing and the squad leader who ordered the charge immediately murked by the partisans. And so realistically, I wrote in the scenario document, if they're winning, the partisans press the attack, and they were for sure winning. But I also thought if they press the attack here, it's going to be a party wipe in the first five minutes. And realistically, these are partisans who are not going to fall for the strategy that they just used of fake retreating and then setting up an ambush they're going to be a little smarter than that and so for context this is a scenario where the players are playing as a nazi anti-partisan unit so getting killed is not something that's you know a profound violation of the social contract that the players enter into when they play the scenario in fact getting killed is something that they all quite enjoyed because the characters they were playing were deliberately not very nice people for a bunch of reasons, and if you 've seen the film, then you you understand the context that this is coming from, but uh, that was a scenario that was very deliberately designed for a large number of players because if you 're like you know a unit of a unit of guys going into a potentially dangerous combat zone, you don 't just send like two people
2: yeah, I can see that so so that's, so that's i mean that 's definitely one way of kind of just helping the handler address the difficulty. I find I do it a lot less in Delta Green because I just feel like i d- So Delta Green has a much shorter window of difficulty. Things are easy. There's a much narrower area where challenges are applicable. Otherwise, there is no challenge, so no one's rolling. You're just giving them the clues, or it's like a total party kill. The difficulty
1: difficulty with balancing, quote-unquote, balancing anything in Delta Green is that most encounters are either the players instantly kill the threat or the threat instantly kills the players because nobody has that much HP and weapons do a lot of damage. So yeah. if you have made something that is, like, totally bullshit difficult in a way that's unfun, your first indication that you have done this will often be that you kill someone in the first turn.
2: Do
3: you guys remember the very first time in Bioshock where you first see a Big Daddy?
2: I mean, yeah, the Brazrooks, not particular. I remember the trailer where you first see it.
3: The first time you see a Big Daddy... um this is, this is a good example of establishing like the difficulty of monsters. First time you see a big daddy, it's distracted. It doesn't see you. You are a safe distance away from it. Um, there is a physical barrier between you and it. And most importantly, you don't have any weapons. All you can do is look at it and proceed to the next room as you are told about it. But during this you get a good look at you get a pretty good look at it. You 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 know what it looks like, you know what it sounds like, so you can identify those cues and you have an understanding of how dangerous it is because it kills
2: some NPCs while you're doing this. Yeah, showing that kind of thing is nice and you can do the same thing in Delta Green. Yeah, I think you you probably could, yeah. And you can do it with just like you can just show a crime scene and let them piece together the what yeah. happened. That also is a, a very simple way to show how deadly something is. You know, I tend, I mean, I've been I've been running games in general forever. I just actually just filled out some stupid D and D survey, and had to actually think back when my first like dungeon mastering experience was. And it was definitely probably middle school. Um, a long time ago. Yeah, which is that back when we had horse drawn carriages and had to walk uphill both ways. Anyway, like yeah, didn't uh, even
3: have dice back then. You had to use actual bones. Uh,
2: yeah, and like so, I come from a, a a place where like if I have stats for a monster, but I have to fudge something, I'll fudge on the fly very very quickly to make things. Like, you know, if I first attack, like almost completely kills a PC and I don't want that to happen yet, I'll totally pull the next punch because I want to, I, I know where I want to get the players in the end. So if you're, so it's kind of a difference between like just running a scenario as written exactly as written, you know, to the letter of the law that there, the scenario needs to be a little more well balanced, but an unbalanced scenario run by somebody who can like, if you're cool with dressing on the fly, it's fine because you're making half what I was going along anyway.
1: Kevin, you are always eager to establish your old school grog credentials, but then when anyone else ever talks about that um, type of game, you immediately become very defensive and dismissive
2: what, old school games? Yeah. Like that kind of stuff. I hate the OSOP revival because I think it's a meaningless term applied to everything.
1: Kevin? But that doesn't mean I don't Kevin, like that kind
2: of game. This is,
1: this is the thing where you say, oh, there's no definition, and then everyone gives you a definition, and you say, ah, this is an example of the poverty of the so-called experts on the subject.
3: The poverty of the experts on the subject, also known as the green box.
1: So, so when
2: you run games, so you tend to you know, fudge difficulty or fudge uh, challenge up or down just on the fly, or do you... I'll fudge
1: fudge NPC behavior, because I think that that is more believable than fudging numbers and die rolls. Because if I roll a dice, a dice, if I roll dice, then why roll if you're not going to accept the outcome? If you're going to just say that something happens, then you shouldn't roll dice at all. You should just say that it happens.
2: Yeah, and I I don't generally fudge. I I haven't fudged a die roll in a long time, because I feel like that's kind of cheap. But uh, certainly if something has you know, if I wrote something to have, you know, 50 HP or or 20 armor and then realized that the players are never going to get through it, then I might be like, well, now it's got 5 armor. Let's actually let this happen. That's the kind of fudging, you know, on the fly fudging I'm talking about. But I, there's certainly a school of, you know, handling and jamming that you know doesn't do that. So, and it's, you know, neither is any more valid than the other. Do you find it easier to, um, I guess you don't, I guess, Max, you don't run a lot of other people's scenarios, but Like, would would you find it easier to keep the challenge on an even keel with one of your own scenarios or with, like, a a published module if you've ever ran those?
1: The last published module I ran wasn't for Delta Green. It was for a game called – well, the module was not written for any specific game. Uh, It was called A Wizard, and it was pretty good. I liked it a lot. Um it's interesting that RPPR did a show of it, but they did it in like some kind of loose narrative like Powered by the Apocalypse game, whereas I did it in Esoteric Enterprises, which is a very um, violent and uh, brutal game system. And I didn't adjust the challenge at all as it was written. because And it was written basically to be a mega dungeon that has no rewards in it and just kills the players. But uh, I found that... Presenting the le- that level of authentic challenge as written without modifying it gave the players a degree of satisfaction because they did not feel that the world was changing to conform to their needs. They felt that they were struggling against something that existed independently of them. And it's similar to why people play games like Pathfinder. Or even why people play games like fifth, everyone complains like oh it's just, you know, tactical combat and just, you know, using spells to win or whatever. And the whole reason why people like those games is because overcoming a challenge using a combination of your character, the character that you built and your knowledge of the game system and the game world is fun. It's fun to know that the guy running the game is not adjusting things to ensure that you succeed, but instead that you are succeeding because of, or, or failing because of decisions that you made. But then that runs into something that Delta Green has a problem with, which is that um, sometimes it's not like succeeding or failing at the scenario. Sometimes it's just like whether you get stuck or not. Yeah, true. Because there's difficulty. We keep talking about difficulty like combat and numbers and stuff. But for me, difficulty in Delta Green is often about how do I ensure that the players don't just get bored like, how do I ensure that they don't just roll a die, fail, and then, like, there's nothing they can do? Because that's one of the reasons why one I have... Of ideas. Yeah, that's one of the reasons why I absolutely hate playing the game, and so I want to make sure that I don't do that to other people, because it's not fun, and it makes me want to play something else when it happens, which is all the time.
3: I think balancing mechanics and numbers and stuff is probably the the far easier thing to do.
1: Right. Because once, once you ta- start talking about, like, balancing the scenario so that um it can be accomplished... Like, finding the sweet spot where people feel clever for discovering something, even though it may not actually be that hard. If it feels like they're making a deduction or logical leap, that's what's fun. And that's something that you can't adjust numerically. It's very difficult to simulate.
2: You also, it's really hard to know who your audience is. Like, if you have a scenario where there's an orbital mechanics-related clue, and you expect the players to be rolling it, but somebody shows up. Who you know, like Will, who's got a thousand years in Kerbal Space Program and can just knows how this, these things interact. That's not an exaggeration, by the way. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, you know, he's gonna he, he's probably gonna get the clue and solve it and be great. But somebody who has no idea, the rolls it and fails it. Now that clue is like shut off. Um, so you have, no, but you can't expect to have all Wills. You can't expect to have all just rollers either. So that's where I think the three clue rule we've, we mentioned before comes in handy. Where it's like if you, oh yeah, long time ago, it's hard. To, you got to make it so that they can't a roll and a no has to go a long way before it becomes like an actually shut door. So, you know, having more clues, and having more ways to do things. Um, I know I try to do stuff like if it's, you know, uh, decoding a message, you know, you know, let SIGINT do it, let computers do it, let, you know, maybe another skill do it. Um, High mathematics or something, any of those skills can do it. And that that to me feels like a little more of a, way to make things a little less of the challenge or still make it so they can get that clue.
1: I'm going to suggest that giving lots of ways to uncover a single clue is a kludge to avoid having to do something much harder, which is to present a lot of different avenues that lead elsewhere. Because if, you have, if your only piece of information is a code that you have to crack, then suddenly the scenario cannot proceed if the players can't crack the code. Whereas if there are 20 other leads, which have to be laboriously built by hand by the person designing the scenario, then it doesn't matter so much whether the players miss one thing. That's one of the reasons why the best scenarios are not necessarily sandboxes, but the ones where you have lots of options and the options are not all gated behind like succeeding at one skill test.
2: That's probably the one thing I like about Gumshoe is that is that mindset of you always get the one clue you need to move forward and the other clues are all... You know, opening up other sidelines or amplifying information or, you know, figuring out more about what's going on. But you're never gated, like, you're never stuck on the single path you need.
1: There's actually a lot that I like about Gumshoe. Like, I don't like it as a system, but I think there's a lot of stuff that it does that's cool. Like, the fact that if you want to do something, if you want to accomplish something, you can choose to be good, to be very good at that thing in that specific moment and guarantee that you cannot fail. But you do so by spending a resource that lessens your ability to do it in the future. I think that's great. Yeah, yeah. I think that that is a fantastic hedge against the absolute misery that is, I put all my points into lock picking, and the first lock I ran into, I couldn't pick. And then the second lock I ran into, I couldn't pick. And suddenly my character cannot do the one thing they're supposed to be good at. <laughs> and Gumshoe says yeah. if you are willing to pay the price, then this power will be yours. And that's there's, good.
2: All, there's also something really satisfying. Again, obviously, you know, somebody succeeding in a role to understand the math problem is great. But giving the players, like, some sort of a physical handout or giving them a, a, a riddle or a something and having them brain it out themselves. Like, I, I see it in Bestow. Um, I shouldn't call it Bestow. I see it in, uh like I said, whatever. It's Bestow. That's what it's called, yeah. Yeah, I see it. And that's, I'm just trying to think of a better... I know, Who Killed the Case Officer is a good one, but... Who
1: Killed the yeah. Case Officer is one where I actually don't think that the mystery in it is that hard to solve, because every time I've run it, the players have figured it out within a reasonable time frame, but because it feels like they're discovering something, it is still fun, because the trick when you design stuff is if you make it actually really difficult, people are never going to figure it out, but if you make it like a reasonable challenge but appears super difficult then it's going to be a lot of fun because it's like it's like i forget which game developer it was who said it's fine to like design stuff that the player thinks they're pulling one over on you when in reality they're not it's something that you put in the game but if they feel like they're getting around you some of them will be upset and be like hey this is badly designed because i was able to skip this here but some of them will be like cool the game has systems that unfold in novel ways
2: so I guess that's a million dollar question how do you design something to be the right level of challenge
1: <laughs> Well in like, terms of clue yeah yeah in, in terms of um, yeah it's it's difficult because it's not should not be something that depends on specialist knowledge that's usually the big one is that if it depends on the players knowing a specific fact about something then it probably is not going to work although that can be a good shortcut Like, for the example I always use is, um, let's say we're having a space adventure, and um, the space capsule gets explosively decompressed, and I say, okay, everyone make an intelligence save to see if you do the correct thing. Will, what do you say that you do? Exhale. Okay, so Will doesn't have to make the save because he had the knowledge that was necessary in this situation. (laughs) Yeah. So that's that's a case where, um, you know, the players having knowledge can let them skip certain mechanical interactions but what's harder is finding the sweet spot where there is something that you that that is cuz the thing is is that is that it's hard to design the scenario backwards where the conclusion is reachable from the clues because usually it's the GM is designing a simulated world or a sequence of events and then inserting clues based on that but then coming at it from the other the other perspective of what could someone think of when they find this clue is much harder because it requires the ability to simulate other people's minds, which the issue is that you have to think of what are other people going to think when they see something or when they get a piece of information. And that's very difficult because it's actually quite hard to understand what other people are thinking, especially if you are designing based on your experiences with a specific group of people and do not know what a completely random person would think. Because the other thing is that um, Who Killed the Case Officer is the example of a mystery that's very easy to, not very easy, but reasonably easy to solve for someone who is well-versed in the Delta Green setting because it relies on a, not quite a metaplot element, but a trope that is familiar to people who are very familiar with the setting, whereas, or even just with spy fiction in general, whereas a normal person playing that scenario or a normal person who is well-versed in a different set of tropes, like you know the regular old Cthulhu mythos, death cults and stuff, would come at it from a completely different angle. Something that's an obvious red herring to the spy fiction player would be an obvious clue well-couched in the tropes of the genre for someone who was expecting a regular Call of Cthulhu scenario.
2: I think you, you, you hit on something there I wanted to jump back on, which is, it's probably probably easier to balance a uh, a long running game for people you're you know you've been running games with for a long time or like a longer campaign or at least build in some kind of balancing mechanics than it is to write the kind of like one offs that we tend to write um, and just you know run once or twice and release into the wild so so maybe we're doing the most challenging form of scenario development.
1: <laughs> There's a reason why um, the scenarios. Tomb of Horrors and Temple of Elemental Evil were completed without any casualties by the players. In fact, Tomb of the original Tomb of Elemental Evil was completed solo. And the reason is that they were scenarios that were designed to challenge a specific group of players, but that the players by that point knew the person running the scenario so well and knew how they designed things. And not only knew how they designed things, knew how they would design things that were attempting to trick someone who knew how they designed things. That They were not only able to avoid the traps, but the meta traps that were designed to catch people who were doing the usual things to navigate the environment safely. And it's because those products were the result of like years-long back and forth between... Uh, The player and the GM over a a single, not not necessarily a single group, but over a relatively continuous group of people. Temple of Elemental Evil and um, uh, Tomb of Horrors being famous, ultra-lethal, trap-filled scenarios for the old-school D&D editions. Although I think both have been re-released for fifth.
2: I think so, yeah. I, was I know, actually, I know, I know for a fact,
1: has. yeah, Elemental Evil has because um, I was actually in a campaign of it before it ended because the couple whose house we played at got divorced.
3: That's rough. Are you sure you're not thinking of Tomb of Annihilation? Um, what's the difference? I thought...
1: No, Tomb of but... Annihilation is chult. Tomb of Annihilation is a different scenario.
3: Oh, okay, okay.
1: Because Tomb of Annihilation is supposed to be one of the really good ones for fifth because it is a vast hex crawl across an interesting environment that is genuinely challenging but also lets the players run wild once they start getting the really bullshit abilities.
3: Well, I guess that's on me then for confusing Tomb of Horrors and Tomb of Annihilation because I thought Tomb of Annihilation was the infamous
1: kill you one. No, so Tomb of Horrors is I, the one I with... I probably
3: thought that because I, I've never played either and I only know them by title and Annihilation just sounds scarier than Horrors.
1: For two, Tomb of Horrors is the one with the um the face that has the ball in its mouth, that um, face of my balls maybe. Yeah,
3: yeah. Um, yeah. But
1: it has the ball in its mouth. Uh, I know
3: the scenario. I just annihilates I all matters. matters.
1: But um, Tomb of Horrors is the one that's set in like the the horrifying jungle, and it's filled with. No, that's sorry. Tomb of Annihilation it's set in horrifying jungle. <laughs> Damn, now you're doing all it. Right, I mean, this is terrible. <laughs> it's a horrifying jungle, and it's filled with snake people and all this other bullshit. And um, there's like a whole thing about a lich who's trying to be a bad guy and beholders and things like that. But um, it's supposed to be like one of the better things that's been released for fifth first party, anyways. I don't know. I, I again, like, I haven't played in a in a fifth edition game since um, our elemental. I think it was elemental evil. It had elements in it. That was for sure. <laughs> Jesus.
3: <laughs> it had elements of evil, anyway. Um... Yeah.
1: Well, I was. I, I mean, one of those elements was me because I was playing a, an evil-aligned <laughs> character. I was a cleric of Umberlee, the sea goddess.
3: The most common way that I. Establish difficulty in scenarios is by having a clock of some kind, and Jake is rolling over in his grave. Jake, yeah, Jake is wishing he was here with us right now. And the reason I do that is because having a time constraint is one of the easiest ways to adjust difficulty. Now, we we talked at the beginning of this segment about pacing versus difficulty. And that's why, in my mind, the two are very, very closely related. Uh, so at, at, at the table, what I will often do is I will adjust the pacing faster or slower, depending on the progress of, of the players. I famously did this in Viskid when I accelerated the timetable to make a really cool thing happen.
2: You want a crash course in uh, moving your timetable up, run a game at Gen Con? Yes,
3: no kidding. Although not a crash course in how to make maps.
2: Yeah, I mean, I guess my kind of parting shots on difficulty or balancing or... You know, scaling a scenario is. You know, my school of thoughts always. You know, be ready to fudge on the fly if you have to, and you know, with for combat and be, for intellectual challenges, just be ready to give a lot of you know no buts or yes ands, and you know, let the, make sure the players get what they need to get.
1: I did actually have one more before the wrap up. Yeah, good. So, one thing that you should recognize is if, especially if you have a small number of players, they might get as far as they can get with the resources available to them like if you have a criminal and a computer scientist and the target is in like a fortified area and have, with with very strong defenses and so on or if the target especially if the target like moves beyond to to an area that is outside of their reach like goes to another country or goes to a to another state or something and they can't easily follow without basically writing a whole new scenario you should recognize when it is time to in in game say these characters have done what they can do. The whole reason why we have a vast conspiracy is so that we can say, okay, go home. We'll activate someone else. Because I complain all the time about, oh, the players want to kill team. Oh, the players want a um, you know want want all these resources. The flip side of it is that if you have a two person squad, you don't send the two person squad in to raid the the secret hideout. That's two, the two person squad is there to do intelligence gathering. And so, not necessarily tailoring the scenario, like changing the actual physical properties, like changing the number of bad guys or changing the, the evil plan, but changing what the objective is. Like, instead of demanding that the players do all the liquidation themselves, say, gather information for us.
2: Yeah. And then they can try to figure out, you know, they can help the, the combat group that goes in, you know, maybe have a sneakier route or, you know, have a diversion or whatever.
0: I have a thought. If those
2: characters, that. if those players have combat characters, then they can kind of tag those guys in either in another session or, you know, halfway through or whatever, and then, you know, do the fun, do the, and the fun parts around the same, you know, do the fighty part.
3: That was going to be my thought, where if you have a real small, like two or three guy group that gets as far as they can and then calls it in, and then the case officer goes, all right, sure, you know, go home, we'll, we'll send in somebody to, to, to finish up. You get out the character sheets and you draw. Okay, so who does the program send in to finish up, make those characters?
2: Yeah, and that definitely works in like a you know in a campaign style. You know, then plus then you've got to build them, build them backup character, which is always nice.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think that most of the things that you do to um, adjust difficulty, quote unquote, should not be like just changing the physical properties of of the game world, like changing the number of cultists or changing the clues or changing their plan. It should be finding other ways to adjust the parameters so that the task in front of the player characters is equal to their capabilities because we're keeping in mind that while Delta Green, the fictional organization, doesn't have perfect information or perfect resources, they also should not deliberately dispose of people through giving them tasks for which they are completely unsuited. Unless your scenario premise, even before the difficulty considerations were applied, was deliberately a fish out of water, let's see if the computer scientist can survive the kill squad.
2: found <laughs> <laughs> your next scenario.
1: No, I've just found every published Delta Green scenario since 1993. Cut print. Yeah, we're yeah. good. Did I say the wrong year? I can't count. Who knows?